gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Becoming Men podcast. I'm your host, Ray Delanues, and this is the podcast for good men on their journey to live epic lives. I show up every week with legendary guests who help me bring you some of the most impactful content out there on masculinity, and we don't disappoint. This week's episode is brought to you by mastermypurpose.com, but a little bit more on that later. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Fred Gruy, who's an author and a certified hospice chaplain who sat at the bedside of over 3,000 people as they spoke their last words. And today, me and Fred talk about what the dying can teach us about living like the men that God has called us to be. I work with death on a daily basis and over the years have come to know him quite well. On an average week, I visit about 20 dying folks, more than 300 terminal individuals a year. And over the past 15 years, I've provided spiritual care for over 3,000 folks who have died. I'm a hospice chaplain. Now, a little context might be helpful. Nearly all the folks I meet with are well north of 70 years of age, most often in their 80s, 90s, even hundreds. And I work in a relatively safe middle-class environment. By and large, the people I serve have at least had a good shot at life. Now, these facts really color my experience of death. I'm sure ministers that have to work with dying children or in places of great poverty or war certainly have different feelings about my friend, Nit Death. And generally, I don't tell people what I do for a living. I mean, like when you're at a party and you say you're a hospice chaplain, well, they all tend to just get quiet, tilt their head knowingly and look at you with big doe eyes like your brother Teresa and That's I'm right. not I'm not yeah that, like, what a buzzkill <laughs> I know I know <laughs> you know it's like EF Hutton you know like when you say you're awesome everybody goes quiet like EF Hutton's talking yeah but I actually love the work that I get to do over the years as I say I felt the presence of death at the bedside of dying patients I'm not trying to be ooey ooey or anything what is that like Boy, you know, it is cool. I wouldn't say it's cold, but it is cool. I feel a coolness. And I just sense this this presence. And I can remember, it was particularly one time, I, I think I was with a dying lady, and I just felt death sitting at the foot of the bed. And I can remember thinking about the costume. And I remember saying almost out loud, you know, like, what's with the hooded cowl. What's the big deal here? And I started to wonder if death uses the cowl to hide his own grief at having to come and collect so many folks who never really lived. They never gave their hearts freedom, Ray, to love or to receive love. So afraid of what others thought. They were seduced by our Cultural's unachievable standards of wealth, of beauty, of knowledge, or they were traumatized by painful life experiences. They spent their limited, precious moments of life self absorbed in a sleepwalk. And so I can remember thinking, why is the Grim Reaper so grim? Maybe he aches so deeply for all the missed opportunities that we all had to really live. And so Since that experience, I'm not teasing, since that experience, I have spent my time, I'll be 69 next month, uh, working to strengthen my own 
engagement with life. I want to really be alive while I can. So I look for opportunities to be generous, especially with my time, which is really hard for me. I'm very stingy with my time. I want to surrender to the things I can't change, battle the ones I can, and I want to pray to know the difference between the two. So I start every day praying for the grace and courage to be Chaplain Fred for yet another day and ask God for the openness of my heart to use the day as a treasure hunt in the midst of all the things I got to do, the phone calls, the traffic, the charting, the emails, the meetings. I want to, during the day when I'm working, I want to be able to really see at least three people. I mean, really see them, see what's beautiful and special about them, and then find some way of communicating that to them so I can let them know how special they are. And then as I sit for prayer in the evenings and reflect on those folks that I saw during the day and pray for them, I want to find things to tell them that they're special and they can be big or little, but I want my life to be a blessing for others. And I've come to the realization at this point in my life, all right, so after being with 3,000 folks that have died, been a chaplain for 15 years, I'm going to be 69 years old, at this point in my life, Brother Ray, what it boils down to is I just want to be a good man. I want to spend my remaining days telling the people I love why it is I love them. I want to reflect back to them the beauty I see within them. I want to be a conduit of God's grace rather than a participant in the cultural fear that there's not enough. I want to be kind and generous. I want to trust that if I give myself to these tasks, that I might actually become the son that God dreams me to be. I want at the end of my days, when I lie on my deathbed, that the last words to cross my lips would be thank you. And I want when my friend death comes for me, that he won't be crying when he comes, but he'll have a gentle and a knowing glance indicating that I really lived. Wow. And that right there is enough to get you on an airplane with a parachute on your back and just say, I'm going to go live. Right. Or that's at least the initial response. If I'm honest and a young man hearing, okay, I got it. I really got to live. Yeah. But you know what? I think also, as I hear that and I just reflect on my life, there's some terms, some words that you're using that involve such intentionality in the minute. Would you agree? Oh, very well. I wouldn't say they're minute. I mean, I would say they're in the everyday. They're in the everyday. In the ordinary, even better. Yes, yes. That's that's even better. The ordinary. Yeah, and we were talking before because I feel like my generation, Fred, if I'm honest with you, is kind of stuck on this idea that everybody has to be extraordinary and everything you do has to be extraordinary. And if you're not, you are boring and your life is not worth it. It's not Instagrammable. Therefore, it's not worth living. Yeah. And I can tell you when it comes to the end of your life, and I can say this with great confidence. Look, I tell some of the folks I visit, I don't pull this out a lot, but when I need to, I do. I'm somewhat of an expert. I mean, I have a doctorate in end of life care from Berkeley. I've written two books that were published. I've written numerous peer review articles. And like I say, I've been doing this 15 years, been with 3000. So I'm somewhat of an expert on death and dying. And the folks I've been with at the end of their life, they don't give a crap about a lot of that stuff. 
all that matters at the end, and I can say this with great confidence, is the people that you love and the people that love you. And did you spend time with them? And did you give your heart to them? At the end, when everything else is stripped away, that's what I've never had one person talk to me about, but I wish I'd have gone to more football games or I wish I'd have done more parachute jumps. Yeah. or I wish I would have spent more money on the All that matters is the people that you love and the people that love you and giving your heart to them and being with them. That's what matters at the end. That's really all that matters. I mean, if we could just take it straight from the word, I mean, storing up riches and things that are here on earth, you know, all of these riches. And you even said it before, when we are seduced by some of the things around us and we give our souls over to them, you're not talking about that. You're talking about treasures that we can take with us to heaven. And a lot of times it's the difference between taking your kids to the ultimate Disney World trip and thinking that that's going to be better than the family walk at the park. Yeah. And look, Ray, what you're saying here is, I mean, Jesus was so wise. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's not that your heart, it's what you treasure. Your heart follows what you, you intentionally choose to treasure something and your heart follows that. And so that's important. And the way Jesus says it, don't store up treasures on earth which moth and rust corrode if these break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, which neither moth nor rust can corrode nor thieves break in and steal. And so what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven and things that will last that moth and rust slowly can't eat it away or absorb it or a thief can't quickly come into, you can't lose it slow or fast. And who was the great missionary? Elliot was his name. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mm, That's good. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. You know, I think we right now in our society are spending so much time, so much energy being fooled by the vices And this is what I mean by that. Everything is black or white, right? When really, I mean, it's not, but everything is, you're either pro-choice or you're pro-life. And you better pick a camp and we're going to fight it out. You're either pro-vaccine or anti-vaxxer. And if you don't pick a side, you know, and I just, I wonder how much the enemy sits there and the enemy of our souls sits there and laughs at how much time energy, effort, and precious life we are wasting and spending on these things. It's more so, I mean, they're important issues. Let me say that they are very important issues, but we go about them in ways that are conniving, that are really, we use the enemy's tools against each other. And man, I never would imagine that I'd be laying in my deathbed, like you, like you'd said before, and wishing that I could have just had one more argument. Yes, wishing yes, that I could have just yes. got that last word in. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. How silly is? Well, one of my another favorite quote. I love quotes, aphorisms, and quotes. I store those things in my heart. Henry Nowen, who was a great Catholic priest and teacher, taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. He has a great line I love. He says, well, "In North America, we don't have conversations anymore. We have monologues with witnesses." And I've given up on trying to convert people. I don't like when somebody tries to convert me, whether you're vax or anti-vax or pro-life or pro-choice. I don't like it when someone tries to 
coerce me or convert me into something. But when people share their heart, here's what I think. This is why this is important to me and is willing to listen to me and what my heart, my experience is. Then we can have real conversation and dialogue. And that's how relationships are forged. We can go from, you know, one of the phrases I talk about a lot in my work is we other people, you know, if I'm anti-vax and you're vax, I've othered you. Or if you're African-American and I'm Caucasian, I've othered you. Or if I'm Republican and you're Democrat, I've othered you. Or if in my state in Oregon, if you're a duck fan and you're a beaver fan, I have othered you, you know, or yes. the Marines and the Navy. Oh, yeah. We look for ways to other each other. And I want to learn, how do I go from othering to brothering to go Mm. from you are different from me to wait a minute, we're brothers and we're in this together and we're all on this planet. You want your kids to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. We want to be safe. We want the world to be a better place. We're in this together. So how can we go from being others to brothers? That's what I'm always looking for. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I think your perspective has to have come from those over 3000 people that you'd seen. And I think that right there is enough to teach anybody a thing or two about how to truly live is by watching people. I mean, oftentimes, maybe you even watch them take their last breaths. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So do you remember the first person that you ever had seen die? No, you know, I can't. In fact, the first book I wrote, shameless plug here on your podcast, but the first book I wrote is called What the Dying Have Taught Me About Living. And what happened? Oh, that's good. Because for me, there's always new people coming off. They die, they come on, they die, they come on. And, you know, it's like a foxhole. When you're in a foxhole with somebody or you're in a serious situation where you're being shot at, you get real close to the people around you real fast. I mean, and that's, so that's what happens in hospice work. I get real close to folks, but because there's so many and they come and go. So I started to write the stories down of the people because I was forgetting them and I was forgetting what they taught me. And that really pissed me off. I didn't want to forget them. They were important. And so I just started to write down the stories of the people. Well, here's, you like stories. Here's this story. This is an early one. And let me share a story with you here. So this was, I can remember sitting next to Jake's bed as he lay dying and he had a fitful sleep. I noticed he had a frame sign on the wall near his bed. He was in a, what we call an adult foster home. It's a home of four or five folks where there's a caregiver living with the four or five elderly folks that can't take care of themselves anymore. Well, anyway, he had this sign next to his bed and it said, when I was a kid, I prayed every night for a bicycle. Then I found out this isn't the way God works. So I stole a bicycle when I asked God to forgive me. (laughs) But Jake, I love that sign. Jake had a hard life of drugs, alcohol, and rock and roll. And it had taken his toll on his 40 something year old body. And contrary to conventional wisdom, living fast and dying young doesn't always mean leaving a good looking corpse. Nearly all of Jake's teeth had rotted out, except he had one bicuspid on his upper right side. His abdomen was greatly bloated from the terminal liver disease, and he was painfully afraid of death. Now, he had had some sort of a Baptist background, and he loved to play drums. And years before, as a result of all his addictions, he deserted his wife and daughter. 
when I first met him, he told me all he wanted to do was to see them again, to be given one last chance to make things right. Well, mercifully, his wife and daughter did come to see him and they brought along a newborn grandson he didn't even know he had. It was a beautiful reunion. There was a lot of love and grace. And before they left, Jake's family made a collage of family pictures and they put it on that wall next to that framed sign by Jake's bed. He was so proud of his family. He would lay there for hours on his side, simply looking at the collage and delighting at the picture of his new grandson. But it was weeks later and he was dying and I was sitting there praying for him. Several times he woke up in pain. His caregiver came in and we repositioned him so he'd be a little more comfortable to ease his way. I moistened his lips and his mouth with one of those pink spongy swab things soaked in water. And looking at those pictures of his daughter and grandson, I thought how much Jake had missed out as he had wandered the world looking for his place to fit. What if everything that his thirsty soul had ever longed for was right there at home the whole time? We're all looking for a place to fit. We're looking for some big story, a grand story to explain who we are, why we are, to make sense out of our existence and to provide a source of meaning for our life. Often, we don't need to travel to discover that story. I was lost in those thoughts when Joe's caregiver's Two little girls came home from school and they went running down the hallway yelling about something. I said a short benediction for Jake as he laid on his bed and I bid him Godspeed. As I was getting in my car, pulled out of the driveway, I noticed in the rearview mirror two young Mormon missionaries. They were cresting the hill behind me. Their starched white shirts and black ties were a sharp contrast to the gray overcast November sky behind them. Two more pilgrims searching for a place to fit, I thought. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Let's take a quick moment to hear from the sponsor of this episode, mastermypurpose.com. If you want to clarify your God-given purpose, master the skills of some of the world's most successful and purpose-driven men, and march into action right now, then make sure that you head over to mastermypurpose.com for your free 21-day guide to a purpose driven year. You'll be able to join the army of men already marching into a new direction and purpose. Again, that's mastermypurpose.com. The thing that also happens and that's equally as sad is that once we do find a place to fit in, sometimes we'll take that place as being our identity and we'll hold firm to that thing. And then once it's ripped away, I mean, then we feel like our whole world just crushed down. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I could say that personally with the Marine Corps, right? If I have so much identity in this institution that having my career threatened right now, I feel like, well, man, that's a huge part of me that's being stolen. Have you seen that misappropriation of the self into clubs or into organizations take a toll on somebody as they are approaching the end of their life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, now look, I am a Christian and thrilled to be so. I love Jesus, but I read a lot of Buddhist stuff. I read a lot of Taoist stuff. That's just who I am. I'm a religiaholic. I like reading wisdom from other traditions. And the Buddha was big on, this is the cause of all our suffering. 
we either find something we love, like being in the Marine Corps, and we try to hold on to it forever and ever and ever. And when it gets ripped away, we suffer or we get in situations that we absolutely hate and that drive us crazy and we try to flee them. And that causes us suffering. And so the Buddha's advice was, you know, don't get too attached because if it's really a sucky moment right now, it's not going to last forever. It'll go away. And if you really are loving this moment, hold on to it lightly because it's going to go. That's reality. Now that's the Buddhist take on it. One of my great heroes, a man I read a lot that I absolutely love is a guy named Thomas Merton who died in 1968. He was a very famous monk back in the day. And he talks about it. We're always fighting what he calls our false self. It's that ego that I am a first Louis in the Marine Corps and I'm buff and I'm tough and I'm strong. It's that persona that we present to the world or me. I'm a grumpy old guy. I'm a chaplain. I'm this wise sage of a gnome looking like guy. And so it's (laughs) it's these personas that we put onto the world that we try to prop up. I think of it as the Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention to the little man behind the curtain. You know, but we all have this Wizard of Oz image that we, I am the great and powerful Oz. And we try and prop that up. And look, it's going to get stripped away. Life strips that away. And I think that's the mercy of God stripping that away so that we get down to the core. My identity is not the degrees I have, the books I wrote, the talks I've given. That's a bunch of hoo-ha. The bottom line, and this is my prayer time every day, I just reconnect as Henry Nowen once again said, I'm just a beloved child of the living God. That's who I am. I'm just as neurotic and messed up as everybody else walking this planet. But somehow, some way, by the absolute wonder of grace, I've gotten clued into the fact that I am a beloved child of the living God. That's who I am. And that can never be taken away. And the nonsense I get into and get out of, it comes, it goes. But the prayer I pray with nearly every patient I visit for 15 years is Hebrews 13 and 5. It is my favorite text in the scriptures. For God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That for me is the stuff which neither moth nor rust can corrode nor thieves break in and steal. Yeah, so good. Listen, I'm wondering if you have heard this saying, and maybe you can point out the validity of this, or maybe it's not, but I've heard it said that when you're in your 20s, you spend your time worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. When you're in your 40s, you finally decide that you're going to be brave enough to stop caring what people think. And when you're in your 60s, you realize that nobody had been thinking about you in the first place. I had never heard that, but I think it's very, very true. And it's not that far from another person I rely on for truth is Carl Jung. I like reading Carl Jung, who was a psychologist, psychiatrist, one of the very first. He and Freud started the field and Adler. But Jung has this thing, the first half of life and the second half of life and the first half of life up until, you know, basically from our early adult years, 18, 20 to about the mid 40s, we're looking to make a name for ourselves. We're looking for answers 
on how to live a good life, on what to do. And so that becomes following the rules, learning the rules is really important. Then we have what's often referred to as the midlife crisis in the the mid forties or whatever. And what happens is, is we realize all these rules that we've tried to follow really don't work. I mean, we try, but there's just certain things life throws at you. They just don't work. And I can say this for myself at this point in my life is crazy. In fact, becoming a chaplain was a midlife change for me. I was been a preacher and pastor before that. But what I've come to learn is that I have more questions now than I have answers. I'm not sure of many, many things, but I'm a much kinder. I'm a much gentler person. I have a lot more peace and a lot more gratitude than I've ever had in my life because I realize there's so much I don't know. And so while I have more questions than I've ever had, I have more peace than I've ever had. Hmm. But life has to do that to you. You know, Ray, you can't say, well, I'm going to choose to be this way. Life beats it into you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have definitely tried to get a head start and I think I have set myself apart from some of my peers as having a more mature outlook, but you're right. There's just certain things that I, it just, no matter how much I tried to will it to get there, to get to, you know, being a kinder husband, being a more gentler father. I just, you know, thankfully over the last six years, I've gotten better, but definitely it has, it's a life thing. Well, and and what will help you do that is all the screw ups and all the nonsensical things you do and being a rascal. Then when the grace of repentance comes and you see, oh, my God, this is what I did. How could I? That's what causes us to change. You know, for me, pain is the great change agent. And I had an early mentor, a pastor, say to me, you know, we learn more from our mistakes than we do our successes. When you do something right, you never sit down and analyze, well, this is why that went so well, because I did the, but when we screw up, boy, we play it over and over and over and turn off. Oh, I have done this, done that. So we learn it's our mistakes that teach us. It's the pain and suffering that cut. Well, this is the great quote I love is Aeschylus 2,800 years ago. The guy that invented the whole genre of the tragic play in his play Aeschylus or Aeschylus was the playwright, his play Agamemnon, part of the Arrested Trilogy, he created tragedy. And in Agamemnon, he says, he who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And even in our own despite against our will comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. Wow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I do too. I do too. So here's what I've gathered over the last, you know, 30 minute, 35 minute conversation. I'm going to die one day. That's a fact. That's a fact. I'm living right now. That's a fact. That's a fact with a caveat. Am I truly living right now? Yeah. Am I going to choose to truly live between right now and the moment that I actually die in truly living? It's not being seduced. It's not holding on to pain and trauma. It's not holding on to the things that will stay in this world or that will rust, but it's actually pursuing what I called the minute, but you said the ordinary. You said you were intentional and purposeful about it. Yeah, exactly. What else do you have? Just to sum up our conversation. 
All right. So to live the most fully engaged life, I think it boils down to four things. And these are the four things I give myself to that I want to give myself to for the rest of my days. I want to learn to be grateful. I've learned gratitude is magnetic. The more things I find to be grateful for, the more things I'm grateful for. And conversely, the more things I bitch about, the more things I'll find to bitch about. So cultivating gratitude. I want to be generous with my heart, with my emotions, with my time, with my money. I want to be generous. I want to accept reality as it is, not try and force it into what I think it should be. And for the rest of my days, I want to bless the people I encounter to the best of my ability. I want to tell them how wonderful they are, how special they are. It's got to be real. It's got to be truthful. But I want to give my days to that. If I can do those four things, that for me is living a fully, that will create the fully engaged life that I envision, that I hope for. And that I will honor God with the gift of this life. Fred, where can people get a hold of you, find you if they want to get a hold of some of your books? Where can they go? All right. So my books are on Amazon. So what the dying have taught me about living and time to talk about dying are my two books. I do have a podcast called Meditations for Misfits. It's the number four. So Meditations, the number four Misfits on iTunes and BuzzFeed and Spotify. And for the last, you know, the last 10 episodes of my podcast, I've been giving exercises guided exercises on how to live a fully engaged life. So that's been the theme of what I've been trying to do, connecting with your soul, connecting with your story, connecting with God, connecting with others and connecting with death. So those have been the specific exercises to do that so that we can actually live a more fully engaged life now while we can. Amen. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Becoming Men podcast. My hope is that this show is impactful and it is a tool for you to grow as you become the man that you were created to be. If this is your first time joining us, then make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you won't miss another life-changing episode. And by the way, if you want to reach me, get a hold of me personally, you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter at Ray De La Nuez. And if you want to help us transform the lives of men from around the world, then you can right now by taking a quick moment to leave us an honest review on iTunes. That small little act does so much to get this podcast in front of the right men. Gentlemen, until next time, continue to march. 